Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? How you guys doing? Welcome to the show. We got a great one today. We got Big Bone 1% from the Big Bone Yard coming on today. This is the first in two shows. This week, we're going to have Big Bone 1% on. And next week, we're going to have Archbishop 1% on. And what we're going to be doing today is learning a little bit about history here. Yes, we're going to challenge your mind. Yes, we could probably piss you off, but we're going to get into a lot of human interest stories now on Sundays on Insane Throttle, get away a little bit from uh, the MC stuff and get to know the guests themselves. It's going to be a beautiful thing today. So let's welcome in Big Bone 1%. What's up, buddy? Man, what's going on, brother? What's going on? It's good to be here, man. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you being on. And for the record, I am at least prettier than Shaggy is, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Shaggy will argue that to the ends of the earth. (laughs) uh, I'll tell you what, we were in Nashville um, uh, for for income uh, in July. And I got to tell you, we had a hell of a good time. We we definitely had a hell of a good time. You get Uh, you drunk? He, he, man, dude, he tried to get everybody drunk. He tried real hard, but it doesn't work because I was in the Marine Corps. I kept telling him that. I'm like, you can't get me drunk. You got to try harder. <laughs> try harder. <laughs> well, he was Navy, so, you know. <laughs> it was, that, was, that was what it was. <laughs> oh, man. So we're going to talk about some history and a couple important people. And what I love about the biker scene is the different cultures that we have within the scene. You know, we have the African-American, we got Chicanos, uh, we have, you know, the white boys. We got a lot of stuff out there that really is a melting pot of what America really is. And I just wanted to give you a kind of opening because uh, we're going to talk about uh, people like uh, Wild Bill Johnson. He was the first African-American to get an AMA membership. He yeah. was born in the 1890s. And I wanted to go a little bit down a timeline of what kind of stuff he would have faced as somebody who was African-American, born in the 1890s, had to live through the 1900s, 1920s, and all that. Yeah. He was actually the first uh, 
African-American uh, hill racer. So what wow. kind of uh, challenges would he have faced back then? Man, and you know, that's a great question. And while you were saying that, I was uh, I'm pulling something up on, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, on uh, the doggone, um, uh, what do you call it? Google. Um, Google. Because there's um, Bessie Stringfield immediately came to mind. Uh, I'm gonna oh, yeah. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But um, Bessie Stringfield was during that time period. So imagine, you know, being a black guy born in, in the late 1800s and becoming the first member, uh, the first black guy with an AMA card who's an actual member, heel racing and the whole thing. Now, remember when we're talking about the early 1900s and then you got Bessie Stringfield black person but she's a girl and young you know she started mm -hmm. doing this biking shit when she was 16 years old um, yeah 1930 but, she started riding yeah and, and it's, it's nuts when you think about it because so now in 2022 you know in the world's you know it's cyclical we go through racial strife and everything's cool for a minute then there's more stuff and you know so we go through all of that but the, let's just keep it a buck. Let's keep it a hundred, keep it a thousand or however the hell you want to do the math about it. But um, to be real accurate about it, it was rough. If uh, if you had a good tan back then, it was hard anyway. But then you want to go and throw in some, make it extra difficult by jumping on a motorcycle. And the thing about being a biker, that's never been an easy proposition. I don't care when you're talking about. Um, but uh, I can tell you the sort of things that they would have had to deal with back then was this. Uh, we we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I'm uh, on, on the big boneyard, when a uh, hood came on and we started talking about one of, one of our brothers is developing something called a black book. The black book is actually a throwback to something that my parents had back in the sixties and seventies called a green book. And the green book was how, if you were a black person and you wanted to go from this state to that state, you had a guide. It was an actual book. You could buy it. It used to cost, if I remember right, uh, when they first started making it, it cost five cents, but you'd buy this book. And it was, it was literally a green book and it would have like little pictures of maps and stuff on it and a couple of people pointing at a car, you know, like this, there's different versions of it, but um, you'd get you a green book and the green book would tell you if you're going from, you know, Columbia, South Carolina, and you're going to travel up to Norfolk, Virginia, these are the highways that you take. We don't care if it takes an extra four hours for you to get there. You don't go this way. You go this way. And if you stop in towns, this is the, the, the towns where you can stop in. And specifically, if it's after dark, don't go here. Don't go there. They're called. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ron just said there's sundown towns. They Here's the crazy thing. It is 2022. Right hand of Jesus. They're still around. And it is 2022. Last night. Uh, I was on my way back. I was in um, uh, Panama City Beach. It's th uh, Thunder Beach is kind of a big deal in Florida, uh, in uh, Panama City Beach. I'm on my way back from um, from uh, from up there, and uh, I was riding with some brothers uh, who, you know, we had got together up there and da-da-da-da-da. Uh, so we're coming back. Well, they had to, at some point, they broke off to go in the direction where they live. So I'm on my way coming to where I live. And um, where I live is <laughs> my brother's affectionately called the area I live in charming because there's a lot of MCs here and, uh, you know, everybody lives here, but whatever we got going on happens somewhere else, but everybody lives here and it's cool as all get out. 
But getting here, sort of like you ever watch a baseball game and some guy comes running to the home plate and he slides in and it's safe. Yeah, but getting to that home plate is a is a mother is a is a son of a gun. And um, so that was kind of sort of my experience last night in the sense that it's zero dark thirty in the morning. I'm riding through weird ass parts of Florida and I stop and it took me all of about and listen, I'm a you know, I'm a big badass marine, I'm an outcast, I'm a whole bunch of things, and I'm let's just say I'm very well protected. Um, but I pulled into the the wrong gas station. It took me all of about 16 seconds to realize I'm in the wrong damn place because the place was crowded. And let's just say they wasn't real friendly to see me there. And then, by the way, this is 2022. So imagine going back to 1925 mm. and that same proposition. It, it was a different proposition. So uh, those folks had to go through a hell of a lot, everything from racism. And when I say racism, I don't mean to dumb it down. I mean, what we think of racism is today is nothing like the proposition oh, no. folks had back then, you know, mm-hmm. you stop in the wrong place or you're doing the wrong thing, or you look at the wrong person and your family's planning your funeral. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, I mean, and it sounds like I'm just saying words. No, I'm completely dead ass serious. So as it, and I'm not going to babble your head off too much, but as it relates to, uh, to this MC culture, because of course it had to start somewhere, uh, with with folks like these that got this thing going way back when, and um, and it's as simple as, hey, I, I like motorcycles too. That's something I want to do. Um, I'll tell you in my club, um, the original members, because like we're known to, you know, we look like we look, and we wear these cool, you know, everybody's all black from head to toe and all that kind of stuff, and black Harleys as far as the eye can see when we get together, right, and um. And we're known, hey, Harley Davidson, that's what we ride. And they're all black. And, you know, that's a thing. But the funny thing is, when the club started, it started so long ago that back then, if you were a black guy, you were not allowed to go into a Harley Davidson dealership, which is funny because these dealerships and so forth, some of my best friends, and we have wonderful associations with Harley Davidson in, in different parts of the country now. But way back when, you better not bring your black ass into a Harley Davidson talking about you want to buy anything. I don't mean, I mean, a chip, nothing else because uh, these old timers, not just for my club either. They'll tell you, Hey, uh, they'll tell you that's a white man's bike. So if you wanted Mm -hmm. to get a Harley back in the day, there's a fix for everything, right? So if you wanted to get a Harley back in 1950, you had to get your white friend. Everybody's got a white friend. You got to get your white friend be like, Hey, you know, I like that, that new FX, whatever the hell it is. So you give him the money, he goes and buys it. And then if he's your friend, he's just going to get you, you know, sign over the title to you. Boom, here you go. Or you could get a used one from someone who didn't work at Harley, who didn't give a damn, who just needed some money and you buy it from him. But that's how black folks back in the day could get a Harley. And you could get a Yamaha or a, or a Honda or something like that. That's different. That was a Japanese bike. But to get an American bike, you know, man, you had to jump through some hoops. So our club... And a number of clubs, I would say, didn't go to, you know, American made only bikes until it got to the point where we had systems put in place where more folks could get them. And it sounds nuts. It sounds nuts. Here's the thing. You know, when that happened in the 1970s, which that's been that's within our lifetime, which is yes. it's like the club couldn't switch over to they couldn't make it a rule. American bikes only until we had a system that said. Yes, everybody can actually get one because we got 
we got it set up now where we can do that. And even then, in my lifetime, uh, my first, my very first COC meeting, which was a number of years ago, a lot of years ago, uh, my first COC meeting, I wrote up. And um, by the way, wasn't a Harley. It was a it was a Harley Davidson. It was a motorcycle that looked like a Harley that looked like a Harley, but it sounded like a Harley. It wasn't a Harley. It didn't kind of sort of sound like a Harley. Anyway, so I go to the COC meeting, and this guy from a certain club says, "Hey, he goes, uh." Are you in the right place? I said, yeah, I'm in the right place. And that's a whole other story. But, uh, you know, we went through that, are you in the right place? So he says to me, he says, he goes, I've never seen a, I've never seen an N-word on a mm-hmm. Harley, let alone one that was a chapter president. So we start having words. And before I could even, you know, get to doing like I wanted to do, some of my friends who, you know, uh, was there. Uh, so, uh, they gave him a little bit of, you know, counseling about that situation. And when he got out of the hospital, he was much, much better. You know, he it didn't take long for him to get back on solid food. But my point about that is, is that it's weird because that wasn't that long ago. Not only was that not not only was that in my lifetime. That was 2005. Wow. You know, that's not that long ago. But um, no. but, you know, and again, considering the guy that we're talking about older guy from a certain place, you know, older than me anyway, uh, from a certain place. That's what he understood. And again, that's 2000. That, that was uh, about 2005. So imagine what they were going through back then, because nowadays if someone does something too crazy, they might get arrested. You know, they, they might right. have questions. They might run into somebody like me. Who's legit, not scared of them. Who's like, thank God. I've been wondering where this guy was because I want to, you know, tune him up or whatever. Right. But back then, different proposition, you know. Well, let's well let's explore that. You brought up your parents who had to live during the '60s, and one of the things I think today in modern era is a lot of these people throw racism racism around where it watered it down. Then, yeah. like you yeah. said today, you would go out there and knock the hell out of everybody, but. Yeah. What a lot of people don't understand is back then and all the way up to the 60s where it was the worst, you know, we had uh, MLK down in Selma uh, and it's true. You know, I have family in Mississippi and still to this day uh, right there in Tishmingo and Corinth, you know, you're told not to go down to that side of the tracks because that's where all the black people live. You can't go there. But what, is true racism that they had a face that a lot of people do not understand how bad it is because everybody waters it down now. Yeah. Then, you know, I was going to say, um, well, two things. One, um, I wouldn't say that the six, the sixties were not good. You know, of course there was the civil rights movement and all that was going on, but that was in response to literally hundreds of years of, just, I mean, racism is not strong enough, a strong enough word for what it was that folks were dealing with. So to give you an idea, um, in the 1960s and certainly uh, for, for centuries before that, there was literally no recourse. If somebody wanted to go out and kill a bunch of black folks, there was zero recourse for it. I'm not saying that uh, they didn't approve your home loan. I'm not saying that someone looked at you funny when you were walking through the grocery store and and security followed you around, which none of that, I'm not saying that stuff is cool, but I'm saying back then they could kill you. 
and there was not a thing in the world anybody could do about it. So it's different. Um, now, in regard, but about your question, I think that um, we got two different things that goes on. Some people throw out racism really, really super quickly, even when it's not really a thing. Because some things, some people are just assholes, right? And some mm. people are so freaking sensitive. No, oh, that person must be a racist because they didn't agree with me. But the truth of the matter is, there actually is systemic racism that goes on right now. But when people, uh, when people just sort of like. Uh, a blanket statement. Oh, everybody's a racist. It takes away from what really, what real racism is. And I'm not suggesting that it doesn't exist still. It absolutely still exists, but call it like it is like when it's really happening, it needs to be addressed. There's a, a, a series on, uh, on YouTube called uh, audit the audit. And it's about uh, it's watching police do really screwed up things to, to motorists or civilians. Sometimes they're in a car, sometimes they're at a house. And this, this is all folks, white, black, plaid, whatever. Um, and in that thing, uh, on occasion, you'll see some, some cop do some super duper over the top racist stuff to somebody. And nowadays it's all on camera and stuff, you know, so you can actually see that. And I don't care who you are. If you see uh, some cop treating somebody real bad and it's really obvious that he's doing all of this really bad stuff or beating up the guy or killing him or shooting him or any of this stuff. And you look on his Facebook page and he's got the Nazi salute and a whole bunch of other like real crazy stuff. You don't got to take a giant leap to figure out that maybe he didn't like that guy that he killed. Cause he doesn't do that to anybody other than folks that look like that guy with the good tan. So my point about all of that is this racism is a real thing. People do. I'll, I'll co-sign that people do throw it out too frequently. But at the same exact time, I got to say that people are just so damn conditioned for a really long time to assume it must be racism because it always is racism, or at least it is a lot of the time. But I think to answer your your question, though, uh, back then, it, it, it was just uh, the sort of the sort of things that these folks went through. If they didn't have if they didn't develop PTSD. And and give it generationally to their offspring, then grass ain't green and water ain't wet. What I mean by that is, <clears throat> you know, uh, Rosa Parks, we, we talk about Rosa Parks and she's the one that, um, you know, was on the school bus and, and sat down and they say, oh, she's this meek, mild woman and da, 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 da. That's only half true. Rosa Parks <clears throat> had been dealing with some major stuff for a long time, well before she got on that bus. Uh, Rosa Parks, at 12 years old used to stay up all night with her father with a shotgun in the window, waiting for the clan to come to burn their house down. Rosa Parks was attacked by a bunch of white kids on her way to school. When she was a little girl, she was uh, 14 years old. Uh, she was attacked. She used a brick. She hit the kids and hit one of the kids in the head. The kids that were attacking her, the answer of that, of the family in the town was we're going to kill all the black people in this town. That's nuts. That's not the sort of thing that we would, that we could even contemplate in 2022. But uh, by the way, so my point about Rosa Parks is Rosa Parks, uh, when asked years later, they said, Oh, well you, you sat down and you said you were just tired. She goes, Oh yeah, I was tired, but I wasn't tired from working. I wasn't tired from walking on the bus. She goes, I was tired of the BS that keeps happening. I wasn't going to take it anymore. 
Rosa Parks was a thug, is what I'm saying. She wasn't this sweet little lady <laughs> that they keep making her out to be. And um, when Martin Luther King said, oh, you know, Rosa Parks, we want you, we want to put you front and center in the civil rights movement and everything like that. And da, 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 da. She's like, okay, I'll play along. But when Malcolm X came talking about, you know, with a rifle by any means necessary, mm-hmm. in, she was like, that's my guy. But that's not, uh, that wasn't a popular narrative. This little light-skinned, pretty woman on the bus, that's a better that's a better narrative than this lady saying, man, give me another rifle. I've been doing this for a long time, but you don't really think about it. I'm not, I'm not advocating violence and all that kind of stuff. I'm saying that, <clears throat> that people have dealt with uh, black people and, and other folks too, but uh, black people have dealt with extreme uh, violence, racism. Uh, it's been a genocide in this country. It's uh, been a orchestrated genocide of black folks for a long time. Uh, if you mm-hmm. think about the uh, some of the first black people here, they were here for for labor. They were like like cows or dogs or chickens or pigs. They're here for they weren't considered even human. And um, so now just, uh, you know, uh, a few hundred years from uh, Africans having been slaves for a long time. You know, the uh, the uh, what do you call it? The Emancipation Proclamation. Happened yeah, by Lincoln. That wasn't that long ago. That was not mm-hmm. that long ago. And even then, if you talk about Jim Crow and all of this other stuff that's been going on, uh, there's people who are damaged, generationally speaking. But let's go back to the biker thing. though. So when we're talking about bikers, here's the thing. Um, there's a, a fantastic, uh, a, just a damn really important club in Canada. You know, pe- Canadians are supposed to be nice. But, um, <laughs> but there's a club up there uh, who is uh, part of our family. Uh, uh, Lost Gypsies, and uh, they're an all black MC in Canada, and they've been up there for a long time. And to hear some of the stuff that they've had in Canada, which blows my mind because I always thought the, these maple syrup drinking so and so's just the coolest <laughs> people in the world. Apparently, not sometimes if you got a good tan and you decide to ride a motorcycle because <laughs> they got they got some different stuff going on up there in Canada, and uh, they've been doing their thing for a long time, they still are. God love them. Uh, but here in the United States, uh, it's a it's a different proposition. And the COC mm-hmm. we talk about this all the time. One of our our big our one of the the big things that gets us going in the COC is police profiling, and inevitably the subject always comes up. Uh, and someone's always going to say it. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you can take your vest off and still ride your motorcycle, and there's no there's no uh, uh, MC profiling. From the from the cops no more but if i take my patch off i still got this tan i still got to deal with that whole thing and it's, it's kind of nuts when you think about it like that because like i can't take my skin off and go ride my motorcycle and just be cool right now but you know in some places like where i am it don't matter what you look like if you're on a bike and they they even think that you you know then you got it don't matter here it's an equal opportunity we deal with equal opportunity assholes here it don't matter if you're black, white, or plaid. You know, that's almost a nice thing. You know, right. As stupid as that sounds, but it's almost good. But hey, well, you know, you're going to fuck me up and him too? Wow. We've come so far in this country. Well, before, because uh, I, I was going to talk about Sugar Bear, one of the best bringer front end builders ever yes, known sir. to man. Yes, yes. Uh, but you're a U.S. Marine. Yeah. A U.S. Marine. And I've always wanted to ask, during World War One, during World War Two, 
blacks were segregated in the military, even though they wanted to fight for their country. How were you as an individual able to reconcile the past treatment of soldiers with the yeah. segregation yeah. to actually go on to serve the country? I swear, man, great question. So I come from a military family, thank God. And um, one of the things is, is that we've understood, in fact, one of my cousins uh, who was in the Army uh, told me when I was young, he came back from Vietnam. <clears throat> he was a, a Green Beret. Went through all kinds of stuff. I, I was a you know, very political family. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, as I was talking to my cousin, this is in the 70s. I'm talking to my cousin. And um, I was like, oh, you know, where'd you go? What kind of stuff did you do? And, da, 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 da. and as we were speaking, he mentioned something about Cambodia. Me being, you know, I'm a, a genuine smartass. I'm like, <laughs> you must be confused because obviously, you know, America, we didn't do anything in Cambodia. We were in Vietnam. You know, mm-hmm. now flash forward a lot of years, you know, we know about Air America and all this other stuff. And we were doing all kinds of shit. And um, my cousin looked at me. I remember it like it was yesterday. He says, he goes, God, you're a dumb kid. I said Cambodia. He says, I know how to read a damn map. He goes, <laughs> I said Cambodia. So now I'm thinking, okay, my cousin's just being difficult. Da, 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 da. Flash forward a few years. It's my time. I'm getting going to Marine Corps. He says, hey, don't do it. I'm like, what do you mean don't do it? He says, because the Marine Corps wants dummies like you that's going to believe everything that they tell you. So I'm still super glad I went in the Marine Corps. Still love the Marine Corps, love my country, all that. Here's the thing. Um, One thing about the Marine Corps is that the Marines, great, great, wonderful story. There's uh, some folks that we refer to them as Mumford Point Marines. So the Marine Corps, and I'll double check the date in a second, but uh the Marine Corps integrated the Marine Corps, one of the first actually that legitimately integrated the Marine Corps. And what happened, uh, all of the, uh, all of the Marines, the, the, I think the joint chiefs of staff or somebody made a decision that these black guys, they wanted to put black guys in the, in the military and specifically in the Marine Corps. So <clears throat> the commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, excuse me, the, uh, the base commander at the time, he wasn't with it. They didn't let these Marines go to uh, boot camp with the white Marines. So they put them in Mumford Point, North Carolina. And the base commander's like, we're going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at them. And if that don't work, get the kitchen sink and throw that at them. He goes, I want you to tear these boys apart, break them down, make them all quit. It had the opposite effect. Not only did it did they not quit, it made a bunch of super Marines. Like these guys were the legit badasses of all the freaking Marines. So much to the point that when the commandant of the Marine Corps found out about what was going on down there and saw how these guys were moving and fighting and all of this kind of stuff, he was like, what's going on? What are you doing to, with these freaking with these colored Marines down here? Oh, well, you know, we know they weren't that good. And this, that, and other thing. Da, da, da. He said, no, no, you ain't following me. You're not tracking whatever the hell you did with them. I need y'all to do that with all the rest of the freaking Marines on the planet. I want that. So the Marine Corps was very proactive in integrating uh, uh, African-Americans and, and black Marines into the, what we call the FMF or the fleet Marine force and Mumford point became the standard for how you train Marines in Paris Island and in San Diego. Uh, so I don't care whether you're white, black or plaid. If you're a Marine, you know what the hell a Mumford point Marine is because that's the shit that raised our whole game considerably. And Marine Corps has a very proud history. So there's the Mumford point Marines, but then along with that, the Marine Corps was incredibly adamant. Once, once the word went out, hey, look, fuck all that racism. 
or excuse me, uh, forget all that racism. We ain't doing that. The Marine Corps says there's two colors in the Marine Corps, light green or dark green. And I, I had a, a guy that was in boot camp with me. He says, well, you know, drill instructor. He said, he says, I'm Native American. Which am I? He says, pick one. You're dark green or light green. There's no white boys, black boys, Asians, whatever. You're dark green or light green. That's it. And uh, there's no, so the Marine Corps really uh, dissuades anybody from, from impressing. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not ignorant. I don't think that somebody don't have some stuff left in them from, you know, Mississippi from, from two generations ago. And, you know, they're just, everybody's all hunky dory, but as it relates to the business of being Marines, overwhelmingly the Marine Corps has done an excellent job with, uh, with doing as much as they could do to eradicate racism. Uh, I was stationed in Camp Lejeune in the, uh, in the eighties. And there was a guy from Chillicothe, Ohio. I had to learn that word because that's how he had learned to say Chillicothe because that's where this guy was from. And I won't say his name, but uh, there was this one guy. He was a uh, full patch or not full patch. He was a full member of the KKK, uh, both in uh, his Ohio chapter and then in, uh, down in North Carolina, he joined another one. And they had a certain license plate that they would put on a car and they had little stickers and stuff like that so that they could identify one another. Well, my first sergeant, uh, who's also who was also from Ohio, he knew what that was. So he called everybody out to formation, asked whose car is that? That one Marine said, that's my car. He says, okay, great. And this is before cell phones and all that kind of stuff. So he had us standing outside in formation and freaking 90 degree temperatures while he went inside to make a phone call. He came back outside. A tow truck showed up. A bunch of MPs showed up. They grabbed his car, smashed his windows, opened it up to find the rest of the KKK, uh, you know, propaganda or whatever, the stuff from his meetings and so forth. Went through his stuff, found his, found the hood and the whole freaking thing. They arrested him on the spot. They kicked him out of the Marine Corps. Why? Marine Corps don't tolerate that shit. That was it. Mm -hmm. Do you think uh, the turning point as far as the service is concerned in World War II was the service uh, men that served with the uh, Red Tails? Um, Two things. One, not for nothing, Marine Corps was the first uh, uh, branch of military to use motorcycles in combat. Just saying. Had to get that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get that off my chest. But, um, but you know, the Red Tails, uh, in a huge fashion, uh, they changed a lot of that. What, what the Red Tails did, more so than uh, for purposes of you know, the media, which was different at the time, uh, more so than uh, for the media or any of that, they earned the respect of the people that depended on them, which were, you know, you're talking about tanker pilots. Uh, you're talking about pilots who are white, who did not. They used to request them. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, because guess what? You could be the biggest racist in North America, but if you know, you got to go from point A to point B, and the best man for the job happens to be one of them black boys over there that fly them them uh, them Mustangs with the red tails on them. Guess what? All of that stuff check that goes right out the window because your job is to get home and not be dead. You know, you want to make it through this war. You want to make it through this conflict. And who's going to do that? Them black fellows over there. So guess what? We don't have time to play those little silly ass racist games. I need to not be dead right now. So that that ideology did an awful lot to change the way that the way that uh, the military looked at at black folks, uh, because 
my father told me years ago when he was in Germany, he was, uh, or he, he was in the war, the second world war. And, um, he was at, at this point in his career, he was a, uh, a prison guard. Like he would, uh, they captured the Nazis and he'd move the Nazis from one place to another place. So he spent a lot of time in Germany. And he said, one of the things that hurt his feelings so bad was while in Germany, they had the Fraulein's he used to call them the, the German women. And, you know, if you're a black guy from America and they had German women who liked everybody, they liked Americans, black, white, whatever. So the black guys were getting along and they were going on dates and all this kind of stuff. And some of the American GIs, they didn't like that. So they started spreading rumors to all of the, they started spreading these rumors to all of the, uh, the Fraulein's, the German people. Hey, look, those black guys at night, don't, don't sleep with them or any of that. Don't spend too much time with them because at night their tails grow out when the sun goes down. And sometimes those tails will wrap around your neck and, and choke you and kill you. Wow. Well, the thing is, and so my dad told me, he said he got him really upset. And uh, one of his friends just cried, cried, cried. He, he was just heartbroken because the woman said, no, I don't want your tail to kill me. You know, you, you colored GI, your tail's going to kill me. So my dad being a, a pervert, don't fall too far off the, the tree or whatever that is. But uh, my dad says, yeah, you got to show him, show him that tail, show him how it grows. I think they're probably going to like it. So, so he had that whole thing going on. And uh, so long story short, uh, yeah, they got along pretty good with the German girls because then the story, they changed the narrative as it were. He didn't have the language to say we changed the narrative. So they put the spin on it, which is, yeah, the tail grows, but you're going to like it. <laughs> so it worked. So, so there was that. You know? Why do you think after fighting in World War II uh, and at what everybody went through, why do you think it's still segregated within the biker scene? Well, um, what happens is this. Segregation, it depends on where you're talking about and what you're talking about. And what I mean by that is this. So uh, I was actually having this conversation with uh, somebody at the COC earlier. So what happens is like this. There's certain clubs like my own, uh, the original members of my club, they called them the Amigos because they were always hanging out. These are guys that were coming back from um, from like Korea and, uh, you know, most they're all military guys, a bunch of Marines. Thank God. Ura. But um, but the original members of my club were military guys who were coming back from war and they love motorcycles. They got familiar with motorcycles when they were, when they were in the military. So they got some motorcycles and they were hanging out with uh, uh, some white guys up in, uh, up in Michigan. And that club said, Hey, you know, uh, we're having a party Friday night. Uh, Cause we're going to open the books, open the books means we're going to take in new members. And if, uh, so we're telling anybody who's interested in joining our club Friday night's the night to be there. We're going to have a big party. So they're having a big party. And at some point this club says, Hey, Anybody who wants to join, you know, uh, hang out. If you're not here to join the club, get the hell out. Get out. We're not, you know, so you're kicking people out. So, of course, the amigos are all excited. Yeah, we're here to join. Oh, what do you guys, you guys got to get out. No, no, no. We're here to join. We're here to join. No, you guys can't join. Get the hell out. No, you said we're here to join. You guys can't join. Why not? You're black. And of course, in the true fashion, my club, big fight breaks out. There's only like six of them and you know, 50 of these guys. So they get beat up and thrown out. And uh, in fact, that's where the club name uh, came from. I'll tell you about that uh, another time off air. But uh, anyway, so they decided, OK, well, we can't join this club because we're black guys. You know what? Well, screw that. 
we'll make our own club. We'll tell those guys they can't join our club because they're white guys. And so back then, that was what it was. If you were black, you couldn't join a white club. You white couldn't join a black club. So uh, my club started started a club a year later. They said to myself a year later that that uh, previous club didn't exist anymore. Uh, folks don't even talk to this day. People don't say it out loud until they didn't start saying it out loud until 2012 or something like that. When you know some folks that were old enough to do what the hell they want would talk about it. You know, and um, and it's still mentioned. There's still pictures of it. There's no record of these guys, because. But the the point is though, is that I could do that same story in reverse a hundred times in different parts of the country back then. So we flash forward to 2022. There are certain clubs that are still that still have, as they like to say, racial identity, or they'll have something in their bylaws that says, in order to be a member of this club, you got to be white, male. 21 riding American motorcycle. That's the basics. You got to meet those, those four, those first four criteria. And we'll talk about the other stuff later, but those first four, uh, white male, 21 American motorcycle. Check, 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 check. Okay, cool. Well, what if I'm black male, 21 American motorcycle? Nope. You can't come here, but that doesn't mean that you can't become a member of one of their support clubs or a club on the set or any of these sort of things. So these clubs that have been around for, 50 60 70 plus years they have these bylaws that they've simply elected not to change you know like let's not you know the wheel ain't broke don't fix it doesn't mean i'm hating those guys or any of that because like with us um i have great relationships with a number of different dominant clubs we get along fantastically uh we deal with each other go to each other's clubhouses the whole thing we'll go out drinking and go to the clubs and the whole thing where it's just us, like my guys, their guys, we're hanging out, we're tight. But I could never join that club because I got this built-in good tan. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not messed up about it. And and they know, they know the same thing. You're like, man, I could stay in the sun for a month and you still wouldn't let me join. I'm like, yeah, no, it's messed up. So in those early days you were talking about uh, decades ago, yeah. was there tension between sets or was there an understanding, hey, you guys stay there and we'll stay over here? Was there any working relationships? And that's a great question. It's ge uh, geographical. Uh, what I mean by that is in some areas, in some states, they like to say AO, they use the expression AO and this AO or that AO. And some in some areas, it is like in um, I'll use like Ohio is one of those states, uh, Michigan. Uh, that's like a thing uh, where they'll say, OK. From here to here, and then I'm literally on a map, from here to here, and going all the way to there, that's you guys. We ain't coming over there. Y'all black guys, that's all of your stuff. A bunch of y'all live over there anyway. So all of that, that's you. We ain't coming over there. And if we do, there's going to be a phone call or a conversation or something. Now, you guys, don't bring your ass over here because this is us. And if we need to get together because there's a this thing, that thing, the other thing, then we understand that yeah. it's Harley. Harley, like this is even way back in the day. Uh, after Harley stopped with all their stuff, like in the 70s, everybody could go to Harley. Harley became one of the places, a lot of places in the United States. Anybody can go to Harley. You might need to buy a tire. You might need a spark plug. You might need who knows what. Got to go to Harley to get your stuff. So Harley became a place where people could get together. Uh, and Harley started having bike nights, and they still do, uh, having bike nights and all like this kind of stuff because they knew, hey, everybody can go to Harley. You're going to play nice because it's Harley, and that's the thing. It didn't matter which side of town Harley was on, anybody could go there. But um, but going back to what you were saying, 
there have been uh, a number of times in a number of places, whereas stay on your side. And if you don't, anything that happens to you or if you catch a bad day, it's because you didn't follow that particular rule. Now, that's some place. Now, in other places, it's very much like a, a live and let live kind of a thing. It's more like, hey, these clubs are with us. Those clubs are with you. You do your thing, and those are your people. How do you identify who they are? Well, they wear a support patch that says, I'm with so-and-so. So, okay, that's your folks. Your folks know that they need to stay in their lane, right? Well, what about yours? Yours do too, right? Yep. Guess what? And here's the crazy thing. Uh, if you look at support clubs nowadays, you might have a all-black club or an all-white dominant, and their support clubs look like the freaking United Nations. Because a lot of that stuff that was going on once upon a time, I, I say this often, if the if the U.S. government could kind of figure out a way to do what we do in the motorcycle community, the country would be better for it. Because they're, they're those folks who have decided for one reason or another that I don't like black folks or I don't like white folks or I don't like whoever the hell. Okay, fine. You don't have to work with somebody to be, or you don't have to, to be best buddies with somebody to be able to coexist with them. And in the case of us, or a lot of us, we actually do like each other, you know, and like the beef and bullshit, the BS that comes up with uh, uh, between clubs, most of the time nowadays has nothing to do with race. It's typically about some girl or, or maybe <laughs> girl, girl. <Yeah>. some <laughs> woman. Girl. Yeah, you can always, you can practically, you can trace every problem in the world back to some, some girl that some guy liked and another girl liked it. You know, you can do that all day, every day. Mm. But, uh, you, but you're yeah. with the COC. Yeah. When was that breakthrough where they started allowing black clubs to come in? Wow, that's a great question. Um, so speaking for uh, speaking for my COC, which is funny, I'm the chairman of the COC, which when I became a member of the COC, like the story I told you earlier, that I didn't make that up. That actually happened. So my first day coming to the COC that I'm now the chairman of was, you know, I didn't get the best greeting in the world. Um, but so that was about 2005. And to my recollection, uh, my club, which wasn't uh, my club at the time, was not an all black club. It was a club that had some black people in it. And uh, so I think in my case, I think that was uh, 2005 thereabout. And, and it wasn't they didn't have a uh, anything written on paper that says we're not going to we don't want black folks here. It, we didn't actually have anything like that or, or there was no nothing like that. It was just a practice because uh, black clubs were doing what they were doing and. Uh, certain white clubs were doing what they were doing. Sport bike clubs, who knew what they were doing? But uh, as far as actual motorcycle clubs, it kind of sort of here anyway, about 2005, which again, is not that long a period of time. Mm-hmm. But also from 2005 to 2000, uh, wait, when the, I became, I was the number two, uh, I was a co-chair, I want to say in uh, uh, 2017 uh, or 2018. Or yeah, 2017, 2018, I became the co-chair of the COC. And about 2019, hold on. Yeah, 2019, I became the chairman of the COC. But by comparison, that's a really short period of time to go from, I don't know about black folks coming in the door to the guy sitting at the in the number one seat is me. And, and you know, but that's probably because I'm incredibly good looking. 
There, <laughs> yeah, you have to deal with that. That's the thing. Right. Have, <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's jump back to the, let's jump back to the 1970s and how Sugar Bear really opened up the doors. Yeah. African American bike builders. I'll tell you that uh, Sugar Bear and uh, actually not. Uh, uh, there was Sugar Bear, and then there was also uh, was it Charles Murray? Am I saying mm-hmm. that right? Uh, Sugar Bear, Charles Murray. These guys, and this is a, I hear this a lot in, in other facets of life. But man, Sugar Bear was an artist. You know, oh, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, these guys were artists. They did such incredible, beautiful things with motorcycles that anyone who appreciates uh, not just the jumping on the bike and riding it, but the aesthetics of it. And, uh, you know, and like the, the, the whole thing with him doing that front end with that whole chopper thing and all. And, that, that, and I, if I remember the story right, he took a front end and flipped it around backwards and then reattached it to make it look like that and everything. So I don't care who you were. That was some real cool stuff. And it got to the point where is folks outside of the, uh, the African-American community were seeing this stuff like, wow, where did that come from? Who did that? And. So I think what happens a lot of times in life, you know, people appreciate beauty. People appreciate art. They appreciate excellence. So it's really hard to be a racist when you're digging something that hard. You know, right. Like uh, even if we're talking about uh, uh, the Easy Rider movie. Uh, yeah, because uh, he got short shafted in there uh, where yeah. he didn't get credit for Captain America. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the like literally the most iconic bike in, in in like the history of the planet and yeah he got shafted but and i don't even say but he got shafted the the good news is is that you know history finally gave this man a nod and and we were able to look back and see hey how did that whole thing happen and we saw because uh i think uh, uh murray was uh actually i think both of them were uh were chosen few i think and uh but they they were bike builders and they were artists and I think what happens, art, it, just like music, art and music have a tendency to bring folks together. Uh, those, those, it makes you go, well, hey, well, we like the same stuff, so we can't be all that bad, right? And then people start finding commonality, and that commonality does more to address racism and hatred and all that stuff than, than anything else. So even even as it relates to us, you know, as it relates to bikers, even now, uh, I see different clubs and different people finding commonality about different stuff. And um, it, it, it makes things better. I mean, I'm not saying stuff is perfect, but, you know, again, I do believe it's cyclical. We go through just like the country, we go through these periods of times where people are just mad and uh, people want to give each other a hard time. And sometimes people don't actually have the language or the word. So the easy thing to say, Oh, I don't like them guys. Cause they're black guys. When in fact, really, if you dig hard enough, it goes back to some girl. <laughs> uh, a lot of times it's not really what you're really mad about. You know what I mean? Because guess what? Mm. You probably don't even know those guys. Or like if your club is telling you, hey, we don't like those guys over there. And it no matter whether they're black, white, or flat. There's guys in clubs who are beefing with other guys and have no clue why they're beefing with them or where it started. You know, that's just con- that's more conditioning than it is you legitimately have a reason to hate somebody else or to not like them or, you know, then you buy into like the stereotypes and the BS and everything. So here I go with another Marine Corps story. Uh, 
when uh, I was in uh, Camp Lejeune, there were these two, I referred to them as the biggest white men in North America. Uh, the, uh, we also called them the twins. It was Britt and Broom. That was their last name. One guy named Britt, one guy named Broom. Britt was from uh, uh, Alabama and Broom was from Mississippi. They, either of them, they were huge. Two blonde haired white boys were high and tight. They were both like six, three, and they had never left the town that they were born in, either one of them. And so when they came to my unit, they, you know, they were both this whole thing because they were fresh out of boot camp, both of them. They clicked up and became fast buddies. And uh, whenever you saw one, you saw the other. Uh, so my unit, just like a lot of Marine Corps units, you know, there's some everybody, black, white, Asian, Spanish, whatever. Everybody's in that thing. And they hung around. We did some stuff together here and there. And I remember after about a year of them being in the unit, the one guy said, oh, those two and a guy named Joe Workman, they were hanging out and we went to the ready room. Ronald Reagan was president because we just got a bunch of real cool new stuff, like big chairs, like on Top Gun and stuff. Anyway, uh, Joe Workman says, it was a lie. And I'm like, the hell is he talking about? And he calls me, he says, hey, come on over here. So me and a few of the black guys, he goes, he goes, I need to tell you right now in front of witnesses, the things that they... The things they told me, it twerk true. Twerk. I had to learn. That's a word. <laughs> true. I'm like, what twerk true? It was what they said about you colored fellers. <laughs> like, <laughs> say what now? And you know, and I'm thinking to myself, like, what the hell am I hearing right now? It twerk true. Was it brick? No, it twerk true at all. It twerk true at all. Bro, it weren't true. It weren't true. Well, like, what the hell twerk true are y'all talking about? Well, the colored fellers. Well, we heard and and you name every stereotype that they could say, oh, you're lazy, you're gonna steal, you're gonna do this, you're gonna cheat, you're gonna, you know, you name it. They were like, Well, my daddy said this, my uncle said that, well, my my papa said such and such. Like, it weren't true. Y'all are decent folk, you're decent folk <laughs> and hard working, and I got your back and you got mine, and da 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 da. And we became all of us fast friends. Uh, and they have been good guys in general, but it took about a year for them to start being like normal. They were real standoffish. And I guess it took a year for them to be deprogrammed from all the BS that they had all been hearing their whole mm-hmm. lives. And um, it was, it took something as simple as let's we're forced to spend time together. We're in the same unit in the military and they were able to see with their own eyes that a lot of that stuff, guess what? There's black folks that are screwed up. There's white folks that are screwed up. There's a whole lot of screwed up people, but being screwed up is not something that's predicated on on your nationality, your race, ethnicity, or however you want to call it. Uh, screwed up people are screwed up because they're screwed up, mm-hmm. not because they were born at a from a certain set of parents or whatever. And, uh, and then, as it relates to the motorcycle clubs, you know, if you don't like that club over there, hey, don't like that club over there. The fact that one of those members happens to be a certain whatever that has nothing to do with it. If you don't like those guys. Ask, by the way, dig in your chapter a little bit. Hey, by the way, uh, why do we hate those guys again? Oh, that girl. Okay, gotcha. Let's got to go back to that check. Well, you brought up uh, profiling, and one of the interesting things that a lot of people don't understand, and I I guess, uh, you know, it goes on today, is African-Americans from the time their kids are taught, A, when a cop pulls you over, you put your hands in sight. 
and we do a lot of wall of shame stuff with cops and we see a lot of the uh profiling that happens just without a motorcycle oh yeah yeah but with the motorcycle itself are you still feeling that hey we gotta make sure our hands are out i can't imagine having to be taught that as a kid and here we are being told as kids cops are good okay i'm glad you asked that question i'm going to show you something two things hold on i gotta grab something for you all right hopefully everybody's uh enjoying the show today we're like i said we're doing uh human interest stories on sunday uh next sunday we have archbishop for the second uh part of the show here and really digging into a lot of different type of subjects uh we're going to be looking uh for latino for their culture and all that type of stuff but hold on so we got big. Hey. We got big bone from uh, the big boneyard right now. On go ahead, uh, bone. Hey, thank you for waiting. I had to grab this for you. Um, so two things: what you were describing a little while ago was what we refer to uh, quite commonly as a talk. Um, when I was a kid, um, you know, the talk was when your parents, um, and I mean both parents and uncles, aunts, all that, condition you to here's what happens. When you're, if you're old enough to drive, when you get pulled over, here's what you do. If you're not old enough to drive, here's what you do in that car. When the driver is getting pulled over, if you're walking down the street and the cops come up, here's what you do. So that was the talk. I didn't know. I th- I want to say I was uh, 34 before I realized that the talk for white folks was about the birds and the bees. I, I'm not even kidding you. I, I mean, I thought when I hear someone talk about the talk, I'm like, well, what the hell are they? What does that have to do with going out with that girl? You know, <laughs> are we going to fight? Is it that's that same girl that started the problem with the bikers? Right. <laughs> but um, but no, I was 34 before I realized the talk meant something different to my friend Chad over there. His name's not Chad. I'm just you know, right. But um, so there's that. Uh, so first thing is the talk. Second thing is we still have the talk amongst bikers, but it looks like this. I don't know if you can read this. This is um, yeah, assert your rights uh, with yeah. a yeah, yeah, and and these guys right here. This is uh, the little pocket wallet. So what we and there's a few different things. There's li- it's literally written on the back exactly what you say to the officer. And I tell all my guys and the COC we talk about it frequently. Don't get fancy. Don't try to rewrite history. Don't try to think you're smarter than you're going to out talk the cop or anything. Get very litigious. Shut the hell up. And you read this officer, please understand. And you just go down the list, read that. And then you exercise your right to shut the hell up. Um, You're going to exercise your rights to advise the officer uh, or to am I being detained? Am I being arrested? If so, I'm going to exercise my right to not say a damn thing. And I'm not going to give you any hard time. Um, I do not give you permission to search my body, my person or my, any of my effects. Um, if I am being arrested, please allow, please understand that I have counsel and I intend on contacting my counsel as soon as you allow me to do so. And I'm not doing it verbatim, but, um, but the idea of this little pocket wallet thing, this goes back to the, the talk that we have amongst, uh, you know, black bikers in this thing. The reason we have this is real thin. It's a pocket. Um, you can, you've got your attorney's information here. You can put your insurance here. You can put your driver's license here. Any other pertinent documents that you need 
is going to go in this little folder. This folder is not going to go in your saddlebag or your tour pack or even in the little pockets on the front of your, your fairings. This, this little thing right here is going to go right here in this pocket right here. And it's going to stay there because in a lot of states, if you have to go uh, in your tour pack or your saddlebag to get your registration, well, hey, hey, what did I see right there? That's what they call probable cause. Now I'm going to tear this bike apart. I'm going to put you in cuffs and I'm going to search this thing till till I get tired of searching. And God forbid you got some weed or anything else. And even if you don't, who's to say that he won't put some there and say, hey, there you go. So to avoid all of that BS here, you need driver's license registration. Let me get that for you. You see me? I'm, look, I'm going like this. I'm not retrieving a weapon. See that? Boom. Here you go, officer. Everything you need. Do you well, think they get more aggressive when you do that? Um, I've I've had that happen several times. I've had um, I've I'll tell you the results I've gotten. I've gotten uh, some cops who were who gave me the impression that they were embarrassed that they felt that I had to do that. They were like, "No, I'm I'm cool." You know, uh, mm. hey, look, no, it's okay. Relax. It's okay. It's, it's. I'm sorry you got it. Uh, I know why you're doing it. You don't got to do all that. You know, no, I'm cool. I'm just a license man. You know, they're trying to be cool, and they're they're. In, in fact, I actually had one cop that says I'm embarrassed by the fact that things have digressed to the point to where you've got to go through that that level of theatrics, right? I've had other cops who seem like it was a turn on for them. Damn right. You better be careful. Slower. Slower. You know, they're they're getting off on it like, oh, OK, but what he's not doing is he's not trying to kill me and he's not tearing my bike apart or any of that other kind of foolishness. So, hey, if he gets his jollies off of seeing me, well, hey, here you go. Real careful. Like you'll see my hands, you know. So and then there's other cops who just are like, yeah, OK, all right, I, I get. And, but the other thing is the cops, when you start when when you have to start reading your assertion of rights. And uh, especially when I talk about Jerry T, I'm like, and I say, my attorney, his name is Jerry Theophilopoulos. Oh, okay. Get on your bike. Just go. Home. All right. Fine. Fine. We don't want, because this uh, Jerry T is a, he is a killer lawyer. And um, he has, he's made a very, very good career out of holding police officers and police departments accountable for their actions. And he's made a lot of money doing it, but he doesn't do it for the money. He does it. I imagine because he's really good at it. He's, he's really good at it. But the other thing is he has a hard on for, for bad cops to come after bikers. And when they do improperly, he makes them pay big time. So when I start reading this information, I say my attorney is like in in, uh, in my state. They all know who he is. And some of them are like, oh, OK, no big deal. And the cops are like, hey, I'm not doing nothing crazy. So I don't care who your lawyer is. Other cops who might have been thinking I'm going to do something screwed up. And I start talking about who my lawyer is because I'm like, hey, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm reading the card and that whole thing. They get frustrated. Damn. It's one of those. He's got that lawyer guy. So now they're, they're out of there. What does the COC, uh, you got a real screwed up sheriff in Pinellas County. I had to tell oh, you Pasco. that. Pasco. Is, uh, Pasco uh, too. Yeah. Uh, uh, Grady or whatever his name well, is. But well, we when, does, <laughs> when does the COC and what do they do? when something one of their members or one of the members in the member clubs mm -hmm. go through a situation like this? Man, great question. Uh, so here's the thing. Uh, so in Polk County, we've got... Uh, yeah, it's Judd. Polk. Yeah, <laughs> Grady Judd. This man has never met a camera that he doesn't love. 
But let me tell you, Grady Judd, and you won't hear me say this about a lot of things often, but uh, Grady Judd, we leave him the hell alone. Because <laughs> this, <laughs> this dude is, he is not, he is nobody to be trifled with. You know what I mean? Leave Grady <laughs> Judd the hell alone. I got brothers that live in that county, and the man, if the sign says 55, they're doing 55. You know, nobody wants a problem with Grady Or 50. Judd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So that's Grady Judd. But like to give you an idea, there was that uh that thing that happened uh last year between those two clubs. Uh, the, the, they called it the war on I-4, where uh, mm. there was a Sin City and Thug Riders, there was a shooting and all that whole thing. And with all the bikers that were involved. Grady Judd arrested one individual. I pointed out to some folks, man, if Grady Judd could have arrested every swinging so-and-so, he would have. So is he doing it, you know, according to the law? Probably. Is he, does he push it? Does he get a little, little freaking nuts? Yeah, he does. But if you open the door for him, he's going to give you, man, he's going to give you both barrels. Grady Judd is not. So yeah, we, we leave him the hell alone. However, Pasco County, they have a sheriff who uh, he's actually under a RICO, right, a RICO investigation right now. The sheriff is under. Wow. RICO it's about time. Yeah. It's <laughs> taken a while and um, they're, they're working on it, but yeah, he's, he's a whole entire piece of work. I actually said, um, I said I was going to stop talking trash about him because the last time I got arrested, I was reminded that the reason I was getting arrested is because I pissed off their boss, that particular <laughs> sheriff. And, um, they arrested me for something that anybody else would have got a, Hey, go home. See you later. That type of thing. Uh, I mean, literally charges were dropped and the whole thing. It was like a nothing sort of a thing that I got thrown in jail for. Wouldn't give me a bond and the whole thing. Cause I pissed off that, you know, but again, he's under Rico investigation right now. He's got charges that he's got to answer with his own attorneys, but, um, but that's that guy. And then, um, We've got one in Pinellas County who sort of he wants to be like those guys when he grows up. So he's you know trying to get right. there. He's he's not quite the asshole yet, but he's he's working on it. But, well, um, as the chairman of the CLC, and this is a yeah. question I'm going to ask uh, Bowtie Stephen Stubbs. Yeah, uh, he went all the way back to Waco Twin Peaks. Do you think the motorcycle profiling of everybody has uh, heated up since that event? Um. Yeah. Um, well, well, okay. Um, to some degree, yes. What it's done, it's heated up, but what it, it, it's, it's art it's heated up, but it's artificial. It's done so artificially. And what I mean by that is this. So in real life, most COC meetings and everything, in fact, that's the only time that you can think of in history where anything like this happened at any COC freaking ever. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was a situation that was brewing, well before the CLC meeting and that, that was just the freaking location of some silliness that needed to happen. Um, the law enforcement is pissed all over the place because they didn't get the convictions and all like that. But in the meantime, the media, this, if it bleeds, it leads. Right. So mm-hmm. that it does. One of those sort of things to where is they realize um, they mean in the media realize, man, this story is hot. So anybody and everybody who carried that story, pushed that story, posted that story, and they saw all of the activity and the likes and the this, that, another thing, man, we need to, every time something comes up with a biker, any biker, let's push that because obviously that thing sells good. Oh, so it does. Yes, it does. It's, it's done artificially in the sense that, um, and if they did that to, if, for example, if they had the same um, enthusiasm about the fact that, all of those people were found not guilty. They were exonerated. They didn't go to, they didn't stay in prison. They, 
you know, hey, you, know, you win, go home. Uh, if they had given give uh, attention to the fact that the police acted in a very incorrect and unprofessional fashion in their overzealousness to to prosecute these guys, hey, that's a good story, but it's not as sexy as these bikers, right? So now what that does is that tells these uh, that tells these media outlets and so forth, hey, let's you know bikers in trouble, let's push that. That sells. So what they're doing is they're conditioning their audience to believe they're they're believing the hype. So yeah, it's it's become exacerbated, but not because bikers are out there, you know, running amok and you know, running through the hillside and killing babies and you know whatever the hell else they try to come up with. So well, that's one thing I always try to push on the biker news is first of all, this is stuff happening worldwide. Uh, secondly, it's only a certain amount of knuckleheads that go do this. This is yeah. not a whole club doing this. It ain't organized crime. I always say, right. you know, clubs yep. can't get the kickstand up at noon, more or less be organized. Uh, <laughs> that's, man, the God, no, that's the gospel, right? <laughs> but as a COC, because I'm a huge supporter of COC, I really right. believe in it. I really believed in the man that started it, J.R. Reed from the Sons yeah. of Silence. Yep. yep. Uh, one of the, you know, the, you know, you had uh, Taco Bowman, you had J.R. Reed, you had Sonny, yep. and a, a whole lot of uh, other people that really wanted to pull stuff together because you get a lot of people that say, well, clubs need to work together. Well, haven't you heard of the COC? And I think it's the ignorance of those that really don't know what's going out on a street and how clubs are working together to overcome these type of situations. Uh, That's one of the reasons why I have such a problem and you probably know who they are the Alliance of Law-Abiding Clubs Association. They try to make themselves as the opposite of the COC, but a lot of people don't understand it's cops. Exactly. You know, (laughs) one one of the things I I was just thinking of this is that um, what what you were saying a moment ago, it's this narrative, or or like the people who, who don't believe that what they're hearing is a bunch of BS, it's not so much that they're ignorant is that they've elected to, they don't want to believe it. It's more fun to believe the, you know, the, the juicy gossip thing. So the, the media pushes that BS and these people have a huge diet or huge appetite for it. You could, you could show 20 bikers every day for six months doing all kinds of good stuff and the second somebody does something or someone's accused of doing something nuts, that's the better story. That's that's the sexiest thing. People aren't going to remember Very those guys cleaning up the trash or any of that stuff. When they talk about the bikers, hey, remember that one time we were watching on the news and that guy did that bad stuff? Yeah, that's how well, that's how bikers are because they're conditioned to they want to embrace the it's the same way with reality tv the reason people love reality tv is because it's over the top and crazy they have an appetite for it um and people are and and it's cyclical because if i keep feeding you that bs you're gonna want nothing but that bs so because the truth the truth is not as not as sexy i know um uh we uh my club did a uh a meeting uh, or uh, like an annual weekend um a year ago in uh, Alabama 
And there were people in Alabama, you know, concerned citizens who were calling the police going, oh, you know, these black guys and these bikers and there are thousands of them in all over the place. And, uh, you know, we're coming with the Mongol hordes and they're coming to get us. Right. <laughs> and um, what happened was the, the business owners were like, shut the hell up. We're making serious money right now. So the that's kind of like the roundup, right? Yeah, well, it wasn't a roundup. It, this was a thing just in my club, but my club's pretty huge. So, so you got a few thousand people uh, that, in uh, Alabama. And <clears throat> the thing about it was the businesses were, this is great. We don't have any problems. The police, the entire week, had zero arrest. Not a jaywalker, not a speeding ticket, not a nothing. And then the best thing about it was the photographs from the drones where they had about, I don't know, a hundred uh, prospects going all over the whole area with huge bags of trash. They're picking up every piece of trash. They're clipping this, cleaning that, you know, putting that back where it's supposed to be. And they did this for the longest time. So, so much to the point where is when the news came to do the story and they've got these pictures and all this stuff and they're hearing these stories that can't be true. A bunch of black guy bikers, there's like a few thousand of them and and the place and and everyone said the same exact thing. All the business owners, uh, business owners, and the um, the residents in the area and whole thing. Wow, we want them to come back again, man. This place is cleaner than when they got here. They left it better than they found it. Jeez, I can't wait for them to come back because my husband's not going to clean that stuff up, you know. So, but that's <laughs> what happened. And it and it uh, they put it on Facebook and it was on um, it was on CNN and I think Fox had it and it was great for a day. for a day That's and then that it. Was it. And then they're right back to the you know because that wasn't sexy enough that wasn't sexy enough you know well i know i know you know one last question i know you've been on for like two and a half hours here yeah. uh well by the way about the i know at the national level you know people are you know the public's and you know welcome to come in i don't know about that your chairman uh but where is the future taken the coc man um great question uh, what what i'm seeing for for me i'm trying to take the coc in the direction of um well what of course unity with other clubs and there's always uh, there's always the or incorporating other clubs into the coc uh which that's always a, a chore getting different clubs and different folks to kind of do like like they like jre did back in the day like hey you know we don't got to love each other but let's work on some stuff so that's keeping the same original spirit of the coc in a modern uh, in a modern setting it's a it's a challenge but it's not impossible i want to see the coc become important politically i mean uh we spend a lot of time uh, especially over the past couple of years talking to senators and congressmen and city council people and freaking even uh, the occasional lobbyists uh, as we work on getting a, um, uh, as we get a uh, uh, work on getting a bill, uh, uh, a motion turned in or uh, a motion turned into a bill or a proposal turned into a bill and that bill turned into law and all of this kind of stuff. Um, one of the things we did today was we had a petition uh, that's going to everybody um, that's asking for uh, it to be illegal or certain establishments to not allow bikers to come into that place because you don't like the patch that he's wearing. Uh, so we're actually actively working on that. 
and uh, we've got a lot of stuff done working with groups like Abate and um, which, you know, uh, working with Abate and other COCs, uh, certain civil organizations who have nothing to do with motorcycles at all. Uh, we worked on, uh, was it last year, March the 10th, I'd like to talk about a lot. Uh, uh, we got the governor here to sign an executive order uh, restoring civil rights to returning citizens or, you know, like felons. Um, provided that you're not a child molester and didn't burn down a church, you know, you know, didn't murder nobody and right. like that. But if you were to just, you know, got some unimportant felony way back when, guess what? Maybe you can go sit on a jury or maybe you can get a nice place to live or get a job or go buy your pistol so you can protect your family. If somebody breaks in, you know, like a pathway to being a citizen. Again, we do this for, uh, for people from other countries. Maybe we should do that for people who were born here too. You know, a pathway back to being a citizen. So um, we tricked the governor into, <laughs> into <laughs> but uh, he signed the executive order. But the joke's on us because now FDLE, which is like the FBI for the state of Florida, they're just not doing their job because they're the ones that have to process everything. So even though the governor get, signed the order, maybe he didn't really want to. We don't know. We'll find out. But um, uh, the the action that's necessary for people to be able to take advantage of getting these rights restored is not happening because FDLE refuses to process any of the paperwork. And, you know, he's a governor, he's a tough guy. He's supposed to make them do their job, but he's not. So if you were one of those felons because you got uh, caught with two marijuana cigarettes in 1984 and you were turned into a felon for it and it's 2022 and you want to go buy a pistol, you can't because FDLE won't, do you process your paperwork, even though the governor says you're good now. Right. But, but you know, we work on stuff like that. I did get on a tangent just then about that subject, <laughs> subject for me. Cause I want these people to just do their job, you know? Right. Well, everybody, this is a uh, big bone 1% from the big bone yard. Can you guys do me a favor? Go over to his YouTube channel and go subscribe and make sure when you see his videos to like and share them on your social media because that kicks in the algorithm. Uh, it's time to really grow uh, channels like his. Uh, I really appreciate it if my subscribers do that. I uh, appreciate having you on, Big Bone. This yeah, was uh, so a much. real awesome uh, conversation. Man, uh, thank you. Again, to, so I'm not so crazy next time. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it, man. Uh, next week we have on Archbishop, and we're going to continue our conversation uh, some into the past about uh, some of the people that need some recognition uh, from the early days with the African-American culture, all that kind of stuff. So hopefully you'll be uh, watching on that one. Uh, the 27th, I got uh, Stephen Stubbs. He is the Mongols uh, lawyer as well as he works a lot with the COC. So hopefully you guys enjoy this new uh, format of getting some uh, in-depth human interest stuff going on. Uh, but I'll talk to you guys tomorrow morning. Rock on. <laughs>